Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, you'll see a red Bible in the seat in front of you. Go ahead and grab that. You'll need that. Um, And you can keep it open. And it's page 954 in that red Bible. Today's passage is a pretty heavy passage, and I probably would not have chosen it for a baptism Sunday, but it is a very appropriate passage for baptism Sunday. As we watch these children be baptized, we are reminded of our own baptisms, our own professions of faith. We are reminded of our own membership to Christ's church. And in today's passage, it reminds us of the seriousness of the vows that we take to Christ and to his church. Many of you probably know this, but the Apostle Paul was a traveling evangelist and church planter. And he came to the city of Corinth and he proclaimed the gospel. And through proclaiming the gospel, people came to faith in Christ and they planted a church there. And once Paul established the elders at Corinth, he moved on to the next town, preached the gospel, planted a church, established elders, moved on to the next town. And this was his pattern to go town to town to town doing these things. Well, as Paul is traveling on, he is getting reports about his, the, the, the church in Corinth. Uh, a a church that was like a child to him, like a son to him because he planted this church. And the reports are telling them that this church is very divided, that sin is just running rampant throughout this church, that it is extremely unhealthy. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians church like a a child that, that he loves, that he cares for, as he talked about in the previous passage and encourages them to, to stop these things. He encourages them. He dares them to discipline their members who are not only hurting themselves, but also the church. And so that's where we pick up the passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. This is God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage today, and as we said, it is a heavy passage, a serious passage, a passage of instruction and warning. And yet we come believing that this is your word to us today, God, that you have given this to us for our instruction and for our good. And so, Lord, may we receive it with humble hearts, seeking to do all that you have commanded us to do for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Ethan Anthony Couch was raised in a very affluent home that was very dysfunctional and lacked really any sort of discipline. With his parents' permission, Anthony started driving to school at the age of 13. When the headmaster questioned the practice, Anthony's fathers threatened to buy the school in order to fire the headmaster. At the age of 15, Ethan was cited with a, with a citation for minor and consumption of alcohol after he was caught in a parked pickup truck with a girl younger than him who was not dressed. Most tragically, on June 15, 2013, while he was driving both drunk and high on a restricted license, going 30 miles per hour over the speed limit, he crashed his car, killing four passengers in that car. Ethan became famous in December 2013 when the judge sentenced him to 10 years of probation, no prison time at all, and ordered that he receive therapy at a long-term inpatient facility. And the reason why the judge ordered this is because his attorneys argued that he suffered from a condition called affluenza. You may remember this. And he needed rehabilitation and not probation. While he was on probation, a video surfaced on the internet of him playing beer pong. And fearing that the authorities would come and put him in jail, his mom helped him escape and went with him to another country they went to Puerto Varta, where they were tracked down because they used their cell phones to order pizza from Domino's. Affluenza is a combination of the word affluent and influenza, and it is, in my opinion, an excuse. 
It's an excuse for, for why someone rebels and sins and acts in ways that are self-destructive and community destructive. You see, I don't think money is the problem in this kid's life. There's plenty of kids that are very affluent that do not act out in these ways. Rather, what I think is the problem is that Ethan's parents never dared to discipline him. They always bailed him out of trouble. They took him to Mexico. They, they tried to pay off the principal. They bailed him out of jail. They did all of these things, never allowing him to suffer the consequences of his sin. And it led into a self-destructive lifestyle that continues even till today. I'm guessing you have been around kids where the parents do not discipline their children. At least they do not discipline them very much. They tend to run the house, create absolute chaos. They are usually very unhappy children, angry children, and entitled children. Children who often end up in trouble with the law because of their self-destructive behavior. I think most of us here would say, you know what? Discipline is a difficult thing, but it's a good thing and a necessary thing. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 12. I believe it's going to be on the screen up here. Maybe, maybe not. Hebrews 12, 5 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord dis disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Probably not at the time, right? Probably not when we're eight years old, but when we're 28 years old, we respected them. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What do we call an earthly father that does not dare to discipline their children? We call them negligent. We call them a deadbeat dad. And just because some fathers discipline harshly or sinfully does not negate the goodness and the purpose and importance of correct, loving discipline. God as a good, good father's disciplines his kids for their good. And he does this through his word. He does this through trials. And he even does this through his church. And so just as a father who does not dare to discipline his children is negligent, so is a church who fails to be an instrument of God's discipline to his children. And while some churches practice church discipline harshly or sinfully or unfairly, it does not neglect the proper importance and practice of church discipline. You know, it's been said historically that there are three marks of the church. The preaching of God's word, the rightful administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. And yet many Christians today flee from any church that practices church discipline to go to a church where they can be anonymous and just continue in their self-destruction. Like an eight-year-old that would run away from the discipline of the parents. So many just run away from churches that dare to discipline. You know, this passage for me, and we'll get to it here in a second. This passage is a trigger for me 
It's a trigger because as I go through it, I think about times in the life of our church where we've had to discipline people and the grieving that comes with it and the sadness that comes with it, but also the accusations that come with it. When we lovingly pursue people to care for them, to call them to repent, to come away from their self-destructive sin, we're accused of being bullies, of being arrogant, of being intolerant unloving, ungracious. And so this is a tough passage for me. It's a trigger that, that recalls a lot of emotion. And, and when people say these things, I'm just like, I just, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to practice church discipline. It's just, it's just so, so sad to do it. But the question is, is that an option? Does God say it's okay not to do this? And Paul tells us the answer is no, that this is a calling that God has put on the life of the church. And that's what he's telling the church at Corinth here. And so I wanna look through this, this, this passage, and this is the major passage that instructs us on church discipline, at least in the final stages of church discipline. So first, the practice of church discipline. And as we look at that, I wanna look at the necessity of church discipline. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Corinth. If you notice, he is not, he is not addressing the person that is in this sin. He's addressing the church that is doing nothing about the sin. Verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. <laughs> Verse 6, Your boasting is no good. What is the sin and need of disciplining here? It is sexual immorality, which is typically the sin that needs disciplining within the church, whether it be adultery or fornication or some other sexual sin. Here in the case of Corinth, there was a man who was having intimate physical relations with his father's wife. That could be his mother-in-law or it could simply be his mother. We're not sure. But what is important to point out in this passage is that this is an ongoing relationship. It is ongoing pattern of sin. Notice in verse one, it does not say that a man had his father's wife as if he had repented of it and turned back to Christ. But it says a man has his father's wife. In other words, it's an ongoing lifestyle of unrepented sin. And this is a very, 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 very important distinction because the formal steps of church discipline and the final step of church discipline, which is in today's passage, is not for people who struggle with sin. I've said this many times, you may have heard it before, maybe not. We as the elders of Jacob's Well Church, do, are, we are not concerned about people who struggle with sin. We are concerned about people who don't struggle with sin. We are concerned about people who just are given over to a lifestyle of sin. And so if you are a fellow sin struggler like me, this is a safe place to share your struggles with sin. And, and to be encouraged and, and exhorted and loved and, and, and challenged and pressed towards holiness. This is a safe place to share because all of us struggle with sin. But for people who give themselves over to a lifestyle of sin, Paul says we are called to move on to the formal steps of church discipline. Now what's so interesting in this passage in verse two is that Paul accuses the leadership of that church of being arrogant of boasting in a way that's not good. And what's so interesting about this is that when we have to practice church discipline on one of our members, usually the accusation is that we are arrogant. 
right? Like who made you judge? You're not perfect. Take the plank out of your own eye. Who are you to judge? You're arrogant. That's what the accusation is against elders who dare to discipline. And yet Paul says here, you are arrogant because you do not practice church discipline. And so the question is, why? Like, what does it mean? What does it mean that a church that doesn't practice church discipline is arrogant? And I actually think it means a lot of different things. But one, one way to think about it is this. Why do churches not practice church discipline? Why don't they do this? Many times it's because they are proud and arrogant, saying, quote, we are a church that welcomes every sinner. Or they're proud saying things like, we are a church of extravagant grace for extravagant sinners, which is true of us too. Or they're proud to say, you know what, we're not a judgy church or a legalistic church. And yet we can know from our own families that it is loving and merciful and gracious to discipline our children. And God calls his church to discipline his children. I mean, how merciful and gracious would it have been for Ethan's parents to discipline him? How merciful and gracious would it have been for someone to discipline Larry Nasser or Harvey Weinstein or many others like that? How merciful and gracious would it have been for someone to discipline clergy guilty of atrocities against children instead of covering it up and just moving them on to another location? How gracious and merciful and wonderful would that have been? And when the church doesn't do it, then the government does. You know, when I was in college, I went to go work at this camp called Canacuck. I think I talked about this a while ago, but... Um, but the way that it worked is you would go and there was three terms in the summer. Kids would come for about a month, three different terms. And so I was, I was signed up to work the first two terms. And so there would be one cabin I'd have for a month and then the next cabin I'd have for a month. And I thought to myself, you know, what? I want to be the cool counselor. All right. And so these kids came to camp and, you know, we would pull pranks on other kids, on other cabins. We would do things that we weren't supposed to do. Well, by the end of the first week, we hated each other because I had no control over them at all. They were running wired. They were doing things that were destructive to the camp and destructive to them. And so we had to bear those final three weeks together. And when they left, I was so glad that they went. And you know what? They were probably so glad they didn't have to put up with me anymore. Well, then came the second cabin. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to dare to discipline these kids. They came in and when they would do things that were not wise, that were not smart, They'd get in trouble. Maybe they had to go sit in their bed for 20 minutes or whatever it would be. But we dared to discipline. And the health of that cabin was so much better. And at the end of it, we, we actually, I became pen pals with many of those kids for the years following up because kids want structure. They need structure. They need discipline. They don't just need more friends. They needed an adult in their life to discipline them. Christian this is God's word, not mine. To neglect church discipline is arrogant and it's boastful. It's selfish and it's unloving. Church discipline is necessary if we're to be obedient to God's word. The second part here are the steps to church discipline. 
This passage is addressing the final steps of church discipline. This isn't where church discipline starts. And so I kind of quickly want to take you through the steps of church discipline. The first step is the study of God's word. There are many passages I could go to for this, but 2 Timothy 4, Paul talking to Timothy says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. If you've ever read the Bible or been in Bible study or heard the preaching of God's word and you felt convicted about something you're doing or something you're not doing or a behavior or an attitude or your heart, or, or your heart posture, if you are convicted by those things, that is church discipline. That is God convicting his children to bring them out of bondage, to bring them into freedom, to become more like Jesus. So the first step is the study of God's word. The second step is to go one-on-one. I'm going to look at Matthew 18 for a while. You can turn to that if you want. You don't have to. But Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is often so hard to do, isn't it? When someone hurts you, It's hard to go to them. I mean, it's so much easier just to stuff it down, isn't it? It's so much easier just to avoid that person. So much easier to to gossip about them to other people. But God calls us to do the hard work individually of church discipline, of going to someone if they're caught in sin. And the purpose is to gain them, Jesus says. The The third step is to go two or three on one. Verse 16 of Matthew 18 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if we go to someone one-on-one and we say, Hey, we see this sin in your life. We're concerned about it. You should should repent, turn back to Jesus. And they don't listen to you. There's a chance that you could be wrong, that you're not seeing things clear. And so you grab two or three witnesses to come with you, to come and to lovingly confront this person because we care about them. And they may provide clarity and show you where you're in error. Or they may provide reinforcements to convince this person that they need to put their self-destructive sin to death and turn back to Christ. So go two or three on one. The fourth step is the church go to them. Actually, the people go to the church and then the church goes to them. Matthew 18, 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to The church. Now, when it says tell it to the church, I don't think it means that on Sunday mornings we should have a spot in our service where if you know someone's caught in sin, you come up front and you tell everyone about their sin, right? I don't think that would mean by tell it to the church. If it did, our church would get very small very quickly. What it means by going and telling it to the church is go tell it to the leadership of the church, to the elders of the church, that they can step in and be involved in this process of trying to woo this person back to Christ, to encourage them to repentance. And so they say, go to the church, and the church will go to them, the pastors, the elders. And if they will not listen, even to the elders of the church, then comes excommunication, Verse the, the fifth step. Matthew 18 continues and says, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like an unbeliever. Titus 3 says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. This is where the Corinthians church was at. This sin had gone on and on and on. And Paul said, it's time. And so in verse 2, you can look there with me. In verse 2, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather 
to mourn. So instead of celebrating that you are a grace-filled church that receives all types of sinners, instead of boasting in that and celebrating that, shouldn't you grieve over their sin? How it's destroying their lives? He said, let him who has done this be removed among you. That's excommunication. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I think this is a privilege of an apostle. Verse three is. Now what does excommunication look like on a practical level? We'll look down in verse 11. Paul says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with, literally don't keep company with, anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. To eat with someone is, is an intimate communal thing that you do together. He says, don't even do that. And then down in verse 13, he says, purge, literally remove the evil person from among you. This is the practice of church discipline. These are the steps of church discipline. This is the necessity of church discipline. Now, what is even more important is what is the purpose of church discipline? Like, why do we do this? And we've alluded to it some, but more specifically, Paul does here in these passages. And before we get to the purpose of church discipline, I want to make very clear what the purpose is not. What is not the purposes of church discipline? The purposes of church discipline should never be to punish someone for their crime. Should never be to shame someone or embarrass someone. It should never be to get vengeance or retribution upon someone. Now I will admit sometimes churches do this. And I will admit that sometimes when I'm hurt, it's tempting to do that. But these are not biblical purposes for church discipline. And so the first biblical purpose for church discipline is repentance unto restoration. Look at verse four. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Again, this is kind of the final step of church discipline after you've gone to him one-on-one, two-on-one, brought the church, and he's continued to reject all of those things. But they say that final step of church discipline is to excommunicate him, which is to deliver him over to Satan. <laughs> Why? So that his soul might be saved. Now, what does this mean? There's been some debate on what this means. Some think that what it means is that you're turning him over to Satan so that Satan can actually kill him physically, that he can die before he commits complete apostasy and his soul can be saved. Some believe that. I don't believe that. What I think this says is something a little bit different. So I just want to walk through verse 5 slowly with you. Verse 5 says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. When Jesus goes and he's tempted in the wilderness, Satan offers Jesus kingdoms and he can do that because he rules the earth. And so Satan rules the world. And when it says deliver him over Satan, saying deliver him into the world where Satan can afflict this person, where they can suffer the, the misery of their sin. We see this in the book of Job, right? In the book of Job, God permits Satan to afflict Job. 
but God sets the limits to those afflictions. You see, God is over Satan. God is in charge of Satan. And Satan can only do whatever God permits him to do. This is how big our God is. And so, so, so Paul says, turn him over to the world. Turn him over to Satan that they might receive the afflictions for their sin. And so when we excommunicate someone, we put them outside the camp, outside the church, outside the protective walls of this community. We hand them over into the realm of Satan that they might suffer the misery of their self-destructive sin, that they might repent onto restoration, that they would turn back to Christ and his church. Continues verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of his flesh. Again, sometimes in the Bible, flesh means just literal body, but many times it's codenamed for sinful nature. Romans chapter seven, verse five says, for while we were living in flesh, that is our sinful passions. Eight, six says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. And so flesh can be codenamed for just the sinful passions of our heart. And it's so interesting because in first Timothy chapter one, Paul says that there are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan. And he says that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, why would Paul hand them over to, blas- to, to Satan to kill them, to teach him not to blaspheme? He'd be teaching them not to blaspheme post-mortis, like after they're dead. And that doesn't make any sense. So Paul turns them over, hoping that under the affliction of Satan, they will repent and be restored and return to God. And so he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the ultimate goal, repentance and restoration. There's a beautiful picture of this in the Bible. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to the father and says, Father, I'd like my half of the inheritance. I want to take off. Basically, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't like your rules. I don't like living in this house. I don't like anything about this. I want to go and be out on my own. And much to our surprise, the father says, fine, I will let you go. He turns him over to the realm of Satan. And the boy goes and he squanders the father's wealth on reckless living on, and on prostitutes. His father's hard-earned money, he squanders that way. But then his son runs out of money, impoverished in the misery of his sinful indulgence. He comes to his senses In Luke 15, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That's repentance. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He loved his son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's repenting to his father. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. There's no vengeance. 
no retribution, no punishment. There's repentance, restoration, joy, and celebration. That is the first purpose of church discipline. The second purpose is the purity of the church. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is, uh, is put in bread and it works its way throughout the bread when you leave it overnight. And for the Jewish Passover, one of the, the traditions that they did is that they would remove the leaven from the house. And the reason why they did this is because leaven represented sin. Okay? And not only did it represent sin, it also represented a life of bondage in Egypt, a life of slavery. And so Paul is saying, remove the leaven that it might not spread throughout the whole lump, throughout the whole church. Put this person out of the church so their sin does not spread throughout the church. You know, I don't mean to, to, to use this casually, but, but I think we have a perfect illustration of it right now with the coronavirus. If your kids are in public school, you'll know that they're staying in school. I think it's till Wednesday, right? If someone had a kid that came down with a flu or came down with the coronavirus and they decided to send their kid to school anyways, wouldn't you be angry? Wouldn't that make you mad? They would send them home. They would, they would say, no, you must be quarantined. Why? Because it's highly infective, right? It, 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 it spreads very quickly and very easily. And you know what? It's the exact same way with sin. If you let sin go unchecked, if you let it go freely, if you do not discipline it, others will assume it's okay to do the same thing. I remember several years ago, we, we had to excommunicate someone publicly because they were publicly pursuing a life of sin. They're pursuing adultery and fornication and other things like that. And, and so we had to do it publicly because it was already public. And I remember meeting with someone afterwards because it, it's a very traumatic thing. It's a very sad thing. It's a very heartbreaking thing. And I was meeting with someone, just checking in, seeing how they're doing, asking, hey, how are you doing with everything that just happened with the church discipline and everything like that? And I won't ever forget what he said. He said, it was a great reminder to me that I should not leave my wife. Contrastingly, I have known other churches that let sin run rampant and it destroys the church. You know, if there was a, if the speed limit of this road out here was 50, I don't know what it is actually. I should probably know that, but I don't know what this speed limit is right here. I know further down, but let's say it's 50, Okay. And people are going down this road 80 miles an hour. And there's police cars all the way down the road. They're going 80 miles an hour in a 50. No one is getting a ticket. No one is getting pulled over. What's going to happen? Everybody's going to start going 80 miles an hour, right? Because they're not disciplining people for breaking the law. We have to discipline those for the purity of the church, that we pursue the holiness that God calls us to. And so Paul says, move that leaven out of the lump so that it doesn't spread. Think of mold. That might be easier for you. That, that mold spreads throughout. He's saying, remove it, that it doesn't spread. Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. This is so important. God is saying, listen, you are holy, you are righteous, you are sinless because of Jesus Christ. You are unleavened because of Jesus Christ. And then he says, why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, in the book of Exodus, 
God had come to rescue his people from Egypt, from their bondage. And he had sent the 10 plagues upon Egypt. And the final plague was a plague in which God would send the angel of death to take the life of the oldest son from every household. Regardless of nationality, every oldest son, their life would be taken. Every single one, except for those, regardless of nationality, who by faith slaughtered a lamb and wiped its blood above the doorposts of its house. Friends, this is such a beautiful picture of the gospel to us. We have been spared the just wrath of God because of the ultimate Passover lamb, his eldest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We took, he took on our leaven. He took on our sin and died in our place upon the cross. And he smeared his blood across the cross as the doorpost into heaven that all who rest in it, all who trust in it may come in. And then he rose on the third day conquering death. And so whoever claims the blood of the lamb of God for themselves, whoever wipes it on the doorposts of their hearts will be saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And so in verse eight, Paul says, let us therefore, because we have been freed from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and one day even the presence of sin, therefore let us celebrate the festival, not with all, old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, God has freed us from that. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, which is consistent with our salvation. And so in these verses, Paul tells us one reason for church discipline is the purity of the church, which is vital for the health of the church. And there's a third reason, which didn't make it into the bulletin, but I'll make it quick. And it is the witness of the church. Verse one again, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So Corinth was known as a place of great sexual immorality. Maybe you can think of Mardi Gras. Maybe you can think of Vegas. I don't know what you might think of, but it was a place where they actually had a temple with, with thousands of temple prostitutes that sailors would come in. They would track up this mountain to the temple where all these temple prostitutes are. They would have their way and then they would go back. I mean, sexual immorality was rampant there. But this, <laughs> this disgusted them. This was beyond what they thought was even appropriate. And so it affected their witness to the world. Again, I think we've seen this within the church. When, when pastors and clergy commit horrific abuse and there is no discipline. When, when again, when they do really inappropriate things with other people or with children and there's no discipline from within the church, what happens when everything is discovered, people run away from the church because it is not a safe place. It is not a distinct place. And it looks like the gospel has no effect on them. And so what are the purposes of church discipline? Never punishment or embarrassment or retribution. It is for repentance and restoration. It is for the purity of the church and it is for the witness of the church. And ultimately, all of these are for the glory of God. Finally, and this won't take as long, the parameters of church discipline. Verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So this is a little bit confusing. So 1 Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is actually his fourth letter. So there's letters going back and forth. We don't have them all, obviously. 
But he says, I wrote to you in the previous letter not to associate with sexual immoral. In the verse 10, he's clarifying it. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, listen, if I told you not to associate with anyone who is plunging into sin, you couldn't leave your house. (laughs) And so I'm not saying don't go associate with them. They need the gospel. They need to know about Jesus. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Paul doesn't say they are a brother, but they claim the name of brother. They claim to be a Christian, but their living is completely inconsistent with it. He says, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat, with such a one. Again, Paul is not talking about Christians who struggle with sin because all Christians struggle with sin, but Christians who wear the name Christian, who have given themselves over to these sins and are defined by them. Verse 12 says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders, those outside the church? Is it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. That's his job. Verse 13, sorry. God judges those outside. Our job, he says, purge the evil person from among you. So um, our maintenance man here is, is Gordon. Many of you know Gordon. And he taught me a phrase that's very helpful. It's the phrase sandbox. And they'll say, that's not my sandbox or that's not their sandbox. And so someone will come to me and they'll say, hey, uh, I had this concern about children's ministry. And I'll just say, that's not my sandbox. That's Katie's sandbox. Go talk to Katie. Or I want to talk to you about music. That's not my sandbox. Go talk to Pastor Jonathan. That's his sandbox. What Paul is saying here is, listen, those outside of the church, that's not our, that's not our sandbox. That's God's sandbox. That's not our jurisdiction. That's God's jurisdiction. Our jurisdiction is for those inside the church who claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. That is our jurisdiction. Let me end with this. I, I know a woman who's a friend of mine who loves Jesus. She loves Jesus so much. And she's had two husbands, not at the same time, just to be clear. Her first husband rebelled against the Lord and decided to pursue another woman and start another family. The elders of that church pursued him time and time again and called him to repent and return to Christ and to return to the church and to be faithful to his family. But he wouldn't listen. And so he continued on his way and he was excommunicated from the church. And I know this woman, she prays for his salvation still, for his restoration, and I know his pastor does as well. And if he returns, there will be a great celebration. They will slay the fatted calf, rings on the fingers, shoes on the feet. It will be a great celebration. But after he left, she was wed to another man. And her second husband also rebelled against God and got in a whole lot of trouble as well. Trouble that was so bad that he was actually arrested and tried and thrown in prison for several years. But while he was in prison, by the grace of God, he came to his senses. He repented before God. He repented to his wife. He repented to his pastor. And he has received 
the joy of his salvation. He is in, he's been enjoying the intimacy of his salvation, the intimacy of God, even in the midst of prison. And he writes frequently about how much he loves God and he trusts God and how much he knows God loves him. It's a tale of two different husbands. Both rebelled against the Lord. One is continuing on rebellion. The other has repented and is enjoying fellowship with God and with his church. And as you look at those two stories, let me ask you, which man is more free? The man that is under the realm of Satan or the man who is in prison with sweet fellowship with God? You know, something really interesting about this passage in 1 Corinthians is that Paul also writes 2 Corinthians, which again is probably his fourth letter. And he comments and he makes some comments in there that's very interesting, chapter two and chapter seven. And in chapter seven, verse nine and 10, he says this, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. I'll be honest with you, we don't know this for sure. But could it be that the leadership of the church repented and started to practice church discipline? Could it be that when they practiced church discipline, that this man repented of his, of his sin and returned to sweet communion with Christ and his church? Could it be? You know, it's not easy, but we must dare to discipline out of love for the unrepentant, out of love for the church, and out of love for the community around us, and most of all, out of love for God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Even through this passage, you're disciplining our hearts and our lives. You know, Lord, that I, I don't like conflict. I don't like doing these things. And yet you are instructing me and us to be faithful in these things for the good of others, to love them, to care for them, to take that step of obedience, which is hard and difficult for your glory. And so God, pray that you would strengthen us to do so. Help us to be faithful. Help us to receive discipline from others with an open heart and help us to discipline others only in a heart of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.